Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today we're going to hear some of Nashville, Tennessee's psychedelic stories. But before I turn the program over to Lex Pelger, I want to tell one of my own stories. To me, uh, well, this story also seems like mind manifesting or a psychedelic story because it brings back a lot of thoughts that have been lying dormant in my mind for a long time. However, the only drug involved in this one is alcohol, because all of it took place before I even had my first toke of cannabis. Now what prompts me to tell this story today is that here in the States, uh, today is the national holiday called Veterans Day, and it's held in honor of the 6% of our population who are military veterans. And if you include their families as well, a lot of people participate on this day in remembering their loved ones who have been or now are in military service. But I don't want to be too serious here and sound like a lot of other commentators about our veterans. Instead, I want to tell a little story about where I was and what I was doing 50 years ago today. And I also want to talk about one of my former brothers-in-arms, a man who always brings a smile to my face when I think about him. His name is T.D. Sullivan, and he is, without a doubt, one of the most memorable characters that I've ever become friends with. I first met T.D. at Officer Candidate School in 1966. On my first Sunday night there, it was my job to empty the trash cans in each of the rooms that were occupied by members of our company. When I got to T.D.'s room, I found him passed out on his bunk, which was strange because for our first month we were restricted to the base and alcohol was off limits. His trash can gave him away, however, because it was filled with a half a dozen or more empty bottles of mouthwash, the kind that had some alcohol in it. Apparently, by drinking a lot of mouthwash, he was able to get a buzz on. So two of our new classmates helped me get TD into a shower and sober him up. I knew right then that we would become good friends. I was 23 years old at the time, and TD was a couple of years older than me. We were not only the two oldest guys in our company, we were also the two that were most out of shape. At OCS, the rule was that our entire company had to jog as a group from one building to wherever the next class was. Within a few days, we got into trouble because TD and I were always way behind the rest of the group. The solution, of course, was to put the two of us up front to set a slow enough pace that we all stayed together, although we were the slowest company by far. One other thing about TD. He was in OCS because of a big misunderstanding. <laughs> you see, back in his hometown of Wichita, Kansas, he was in the Navy Reserve after first having served four years of active duty as an enlisted electronics technician. After one long weekend of drinking with his best friend, who also happened to be a Navy recruiter, T.D. signed up for officer candidate school with the understanding that after four months at OCS, he would return to his reserve unit in Wichita as an officer. For reasons that we can only guess at, what he actually signed up for was another four years of active duty after he received his commission. <laughs> the entire time we were at OCS, he was submitting letters and forms trying to get out of his four-year commitment. 
It didn't work, however, and after graduation, he was ordered to report to the aircraft carrier Constellation in San Diego. My orders were also to San Diego, to the destroyer Hopewell, where I was to be the officer in charge of the electronic technicians, who all turned out to be about as crazy as was TD. I got released from active duty about six months before TD did, but he then followed me to the University of Houston, where we both received Doctor of Jurisprudence degrees and began practicing law, but with different firms. I'd like to divert here for a moment to tell some stories about our participation in some St. Patrick's Day parades where we used TD's four-door Lincoln Continental convertible, but I've already gone on too long and haven't even got to the story that I want to tell you. So, let's go back 50 years ago today, November 11th, 1967. For the past six days, our destroyer had been operating independently in I-Corps, just below the DMZ in Vietnam. Our mission was to provide gunfire support for the 12th Marine Regiment, who were engaged in firefights along the coast. At midnight, as that day 50 years ago began, our ship began firing one 5-inch shell every minute at locations sent to us by the Marines. It was called H&I, Harassment and Interdiction Fire. At midnight, we began firing to port, which offered my best chance to catch a little sleep. You see, uh, Pete Biddle and I shared a stateroom on the port side. Our room was tiny, but it was orders of magnitude more comfortable than the enlisted crew's accommodations. Our bunk beds were right against the side of the ship, and my top bunk only allowed about 20 inches of headroom, preventing me from being able to sit up in my bunk. We each also had a tall locker for our clothes and a desk that we shared. It was a small room with only enough floor space for one of us to stand at a time. But, as I said, it was a five-star hotel compared to what our crew had to put up with. Now, there were two major downsides to our cabin. One was the fact that just forward of us was the ammunition handling room for our number two gun mount. And whenever the big guns were being fired, that room was manned by several strong sailors whose job it was to take the big projectiles along with a huge brass casing filled with powder, and send them up a deck and into the gun mount. And the gun would then shoot that 55-pound projectile up to 18,000 feet from the ship. It was hot and noisy work down there, but somehow Pete and I got used to the noise, and, well, we were able to get a little sleep, even during the long nights of H&I firing. Eventually, the ship had to reverse course and begin firing to starboard. That caused another problem with our sleep. When the number two gun mount was fired to starboard, the large, heavy brass shell casing that held the explosive that sent the projectile flying would be ejected through the bottom of the gun mount, where it would crash onto the deck. You can probably imagine how loud that sound was when the empty casing crashed into the metal deck only 20 inches from where I was trying to sleep. And that is how I spent the first four hours of Veterans Day 50 years ago. According to a copy of our deck log for that day, we expended almost 400 rounds that night. Then during the day, we continued to provide fire support for the Marines, expending another 100 or so rounds at various times and in various locations along the coast in I-Corps. That evening, we were detached from the gun line and proceeded to Yankee Station, which was in the South China Sea about 50 miles from North Vietnam. Our orders were to join Task Group 77.4, it was just before midnight on that same day that we joined four other destroyers who were providing a screen 
to protect the largest U.S. carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin at the time. It was the USS Constellation. At midnight, I went on watch on the bridge of the Hopewell. Recently, I had been qualified to be an officer of the deck, the OD, and so I became the senior officer of the ship who was awake and in charge during that mid-watch. As a little aside here, let me just say that the responsibility that I felt to be the OD on a Navy destroyer in a war zone with over 300 men who trusted me to not make any mistakes for the next four hours while they slept, well, it was the greatest responsibility that I've ever had to respond to. Now, about an hour after I began my watch, the forward lookout let us know that we were receiving a signal from the Constellation. At the time, we were under radio silence, and so all of the communications between our little group of ships had to be done by flashing light. As it happened, we were the only destroyer who was in a position to see the flashing light coming from the carrier. I immediately began to worry that the signal would be given to reorient our screen, and our ship would be responsible for coordinating it. As a new OD, and the junior one at that, I sensed that my first big challenge as a destroyer man was about to take place. Our signal man decoded the message and, with a puzzled voice, said, They want to know if there's anyone on the bridge called the Gouge. I'll cut to the chase here. Back at Officer Canada School, the nickname that TD had given me was the Gouge. And how that came about is a long story that we don't have time for here, but it really isn't important right now. Now, as soon as I heard that name come from our signal man, I knew that TD was on the bridge of the Connie. As it turned out, he had recently received his own qualification as OD. So, <laughs> that crazy, drunken Irish madman was, at least for the length of this watch, in charge of this massive aircraft carrier out here in the Tonkin Gulf. And here I was doing the same job on a destroyer providing protection for him. Well, for the next 30 minutes or so, using our Sigelman's flashing light code skills, TD and I exchanged information about our favorite bars in Alongapo and Hong Kong. <laughs> I still wonder what the other destroyers were thinking about the long series of signals between us and the Constellation. Well, there's more to this story, but my point here has to do with Veterans Day in the military. Today, when I think about the women and men in our nation's armed services, I keep in mind that they are people not all that different than T.D. and I were back then. When we first arrived at OCS, as any petty officer can tell you, we didn't know shit from Shinola. But the military has a way to train and inspire people who were like T.D. and me, civilian goof-offs with bad attitudes about authority. The Navy turned the two of us into people who, when they had to, were extremely well-trained and could act like responsible people capable of doing very difficult and dangerous things when we had to. The Navy gets the credit for that, not TD and me. Although I rose to the rank of lieutenant commander while still in the reserves and going to law school, I was not in any way cut out for the commitment and discipline that it takes to be a truly professional military person. And it is to those great men and women and their families that I dedicate today's program. So now let's get on to some more recent and pertinent stories from the Psychonauts in Nashville, Tennessee. But thanks for listening to me first. Now, take it away, Lex Pelger. Psychonauts in Nashville, Tennessee. 
I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. I'm happy to be presenting another storytelling episode this week. This happy little gathering happened at No See Art College in Nashville, Tennessee. Chronologically, it was the last stop of the Blue Dot Tour. After this, I was heading home to get ready to leave New York and head west to my babies in Colorado. So many thanks to Andrea and Taylor and everyone at the Nashville Psychedelic Society that made this event happen. Because for me, it was the perfect last stop. An intimate affair where I believe every single person in the room told a story. It was beautiful to see, and I hope you enjoy what they shared. Though this actually won't be the last storytelling episode. The first episode of the Blue Dot Tour that I released here on the salon was from Athens, Georgia. That's actually part of the reason I didn't release any of those East Coast shows first. That's where I started these experiments with open mic storytelling, so I'd heard the most of those. And so it was fascinating to watch the tone of the show shift with the cultures along the route of the tour. So we'll be ending the Blue Dot series of storytelling soon after just a few more stops from the beginnings in the East. And the very last one that we'll put out from that tour will end with the final one coming from my hometown of Lidditz, Pennsylvania, where we had an event in my parents' barn, and where my father delivered another beautiful one, and a bunch of other people surprised me too. By the way, you can check out my father's new book, Great Sex Christian Style, which just hit Amazon, and it's actually a great piece of work for any liberal, atheist, curious person about this kind of stuff. I think open mic storytelling is a beautiful community-growing exercise, and all you need is the back of a bar or someone's living room or a church basement or a library or a public park, and you can create a wonderful gathering. So go on out and meet the others. Well, I'm just delighted to be here tonight. And I'm just like a natural outgoing guy, so um, I just wanted, the first thing I wanted to share was my first experience of hearing about like LSD or acid or even hearing anything about it. And it was early high school. And it was this presentation in an assemb- a full assembly where there were these, I remember it was a, a woman and two men, and they had film, and the whole thing was just like this horrible don't ever do these awful drugs that make people think they're bees and fly out the 27th story of a window in New York City. And so that was like my first introduction to, I guess, LSD or psychotropic uh, drugs, if that's the right word. And then, and so I was kind of like, okay, well, that sounds pretty bad. But then I was also not really experimenting much. There was a lot of weed and shrooms where I grew up, but I didn't actually discover that because I grew up on a lake in southwest Tennessee. I didn't really discover that until senior year and then summers back working in my hometown on the golf course on the lake and on the marina on the lake and I was a lifeguard at the pool on the lake. That's when I really discovered it. So um, the first time that I actually remember a shroom trip, I was working at the marina, and of course we just smoked weed. It was like I had the afternoon into the evening shift, and the harbor master was so such a cool old guy, and there wasn't always a lot of 
yachts or boats or whatever coming in, so we just smoke weed and hang out. <laughs> and my cousin was running the restaurant at the marina at the time. He's like five years older than I am. And so I remember the first time that I had shrooms, and it was great to be on the lake in the summer, in the still, with the crickets and the frogs, and just the smooth, glassy, green, beautiful lake water. And my friend Scott and I, Scott now has like 10 children that he, that he fathered. And he just has lots, lots of kids around. And um, it was just such, I remember with the weed and the environment, I like doing shrooms more in nature than I do. Like I've done them before at a circuit party, which is a big gay, you know, mega event with DJs and guys from all over the world. Um, I like doing it more in nature when it comes to shrooms. And the first time that I remember doing LSD, I was in, um, I had just graduated from MTSU, a university near here, and I had just started going to gay bars, and I had met some cool guys who actually liked to travel. Um, one guy was just a spendthrift, and we'd go to New York and Dallas, and uh, anyway, we, we would travel, and so he had introduced me to cocaine and acid. So. Those were the drugs that we were doing back then, besides smoking a lot of weed. And um, the first time that I remember an acid trip, it was at a gay bar that's no longer around in Nashville. And I didn't know how it would hit me or anything, but it grabbed me by the back of my neck, around my cerebral cortex, around the spine, the top of the neck, up into the uh, cranium, and just pulled me up. And so I, I kind of had a hard first trip. Maybe it was just the, the intensity of the blotter. But um, once I kind of settled into it, I really enjoyed it. And then, because it was kind of tricky, it was trippy. Because, I mean, gosh, we were probably still doing cocaine, probably still smoking pot and drinking, because we just were doing it all. And um, so then I had some great shroom trips in college with fraternity brothers in, like, apartments, you know, somebody's apartment. And um, I remember, oh, and I remember one shroom trip with these buddies that I was talking about in Nashville, and one of my friends started calling me Jesus Christ. And it was just very strange, because I mean, I don't think I'm Jesus Christ or anything like that, but I was like, why don't you stop calling me Jesus Christ? But then I was like, okay, I'm Jesus Christ. So, but those are the things sort of that just rise up within me about psychedelics. And I'm totally available to hang out socially. I'm just saying that. I mean, it's like, um, I know this is not what this group is all about, and it's not part of the mission. To, but um, I'm um, um, open to uh, exploring, because I haven't really done any, uh, I take that back, I haven't done LSD in, uh, or shrooms, LSD in a long time. And um, I haven't done shrooms. Well, I've done shrooms here and there. So, thank you. So, my name's uh, Justin, and I just want to piggyback off what Lex just said. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, but no matter where you get them from, always test. Test your drugs to make sure it is what you're getting, especially in the psychedelic world nowadays. There's just too much fake stuff going around, and you can overdose on a lot of it. Uh, you can just have a bad, different experience. Uh, 
at, at, at you know the best. <laughs> um, but I'm Justin, and I want to tell. I had it, you know, just going through all my stories in my head and say, what do I want to tell today? Uh, and I think it came to, you know, psychedelics have changed my life in so many ways, so many different ways. And I said, well, I got to talk about that. But it's it's changed my life in so many different ways that I had to, you know, dig deeper and say, okay, let's distill that out. What's one message you want this group to hear? And I'm going to talk about uh, MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, um when I was 18, <laughs> I went to Bible college. I was born and raised in a Christian church, a Christian family, super Christian, super protective, never going to get see anything outside my bubble. And so when I was 18, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go in the direction that it's obvious for me. I want to become a youth minister and preacher. And so I went to Bible college for a year, and I asked a lot of questions. I didn't get a lot of answers that satisfied me. And so that was it, one year, and I was like, all right, what's the fastest way out of the house? Let's join the military. I don't even know what to believe anymore. My whole world just got flipped upside down. Um, so I went into the military, uh, which was a unique choice, interesting, but it actually worked out for me uh, because I had my first mushroom experience in the military. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess my first one... Uh, you ever seen just that asshole guy at a party that you're like, man, I wish someone would just feed him a bunch of shrooms and just leave him alone, let him figure stuff out on his own? <laughs> that was me. That was beyond a shadow of a doubt me. Um, I, was, I was all in it for Justin. That was it. That was just my only concern uh, back in the day. That and getting inebriated. And, you know, that was it. Um, so... I said, hey, this will be fun. Let's eat the mushrooms. And my buddy said, okay, well, I ate an eighth last time and nothing happened, so I think we should eat like seven grams each. And I said, look, dude, you're the expert. I'll do it. So I piled up an inch of mushrooms on top of a slice of cheese pizza and just folded it in half and ate it. And we were in a, uh, a barrio of uh, South, Southern California, so we were in, like, not the best neighborhood. In fact, probably one of the worst areas you could do this in. And they knew we were tripping on shrooms because we had told them and, and bought them from the guys that lived there. So <laughs> they messed with us. It was a horrible trip, but it, 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 went, it made Justin go introspective. And it made me look at a lot of aspects of myself that I'd never looked at before, aspects that I'd never considered before. And uh, then it made me look at all the other people around me and how I've been treating them and how I viewed people in general and found out, man, you know, I really feel like shit. And that was a whole eternal mushroom trip of feeling like shit <laughs> is what that was. Um, but, okay, so now I've changed, you know, I've seen the light and I have a desire to go toward it, continue my, my path. The only thing is I'm in the military now and it's time for me to go to Afghanistan. <laughs> so... Uh, off I go with the Marines to Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, the thing over there was, how do I, I don't know, you, you, you want to be the light in the world, you know, you want to you wanna change things and you want to start from within, but at the same time, people are trying to kill you now, so you better maybe throw this on the back burner for a second, <laughs> at least until you get back home alive. And uh, so, you know, that whole thing, you know, I, I, I came back home, 
And uh, I was sitting in my house one day, and we were smoking synthetic marijuana, of course, which is horrible, but we were in the military, so that's what, that's what we were doing. And uh, man, it just kicked in. I was in my room, and I saw my military gear sitting in the corner, and I was in my room, but I was in Afghanistan in my head, and I never, that was my first flashback. I'd never had experienced anything like that at all. Uh, and that's when, that was when I realized, man, this is really starting to affect my personality, you know. And so I got out of the military, I came home with my family, <laughs> I'd be driving down the interstate, and uh, see a trash bag on the side of the road, and I'd freak out, you know. Get emotional. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be able to even talk about this before MDMA. This is all stuff I internalized. Uh, one year, I was at a Christmas dinner, family Christmas dinner, and... My, an uncle of mine didn't even mean anything by it. Started asking me about the war, <laughs> and I was like, "I don't want to talk about this," you know. Um, but I was trying to answer his questions and give people a different perspective of what's going on. Um, and my roommate started texting me, and he says, "Man, I'm going to commit suicide." Another war veteran. So I was like, "Man, this is everything's going crazy." He ran out of the house. Entire extended family saw this, right? <laughs> So now I'm like, crap, I'm fucked up in the head. How do I get around this? And uh, it wasn't until I met my wife here that uh, she actually was like, well, what do you think about MDMA? And my <laughs> initial response was, well, I have no desire to do it because I did ecstasy in the rave scene. And I know what that's like. I'm trying to get away from the party drug. I just want to get my life together again. You know what I mean? To where I can be Justin before war. And she was like, okay, well, uh, I think you should come to this talk when you come up here to visit me. She was living in Manhattan at the time. So I went up to visit her. And Rick Doblin was speaking at the Alchemist Kitchen. <laughs> and so she was like, just go listen to him. You don't have to do MDMA. I'm not going to make you do it. Just go listen to him. See what he has to say. I said, okay, I'll go listen to him. And, man, I listened to Rick, and he started laying out all the facts about MDMA. And lay into rest all the myths about MDMA and she recorded it and like even we were listening to it the other day and I was like man yeah all that stuff he was saying that's what changed my mind about it so after the talk I got to meet Rick Rick was super interested in my story uh, I could just care you know tell that he really did care about people on a base level which if you've ever done MDMA you can really probably see how that's true <laughs> but so then the next step was acquiring MDMA that we could test that was pure. Mm. Once we got that, I said, "Okay, let's try this." You know, in a, in a therapeutic setting for once, and uh, probably three to four sessions later, no PTSD, oh. none. Uh, mm. You dropped your phone right behind me uh, yeah. during the movie. Oh, it freaked me out yeah. <laughs> before MDMA. Uh, man, I went over to my parents' house to watch fireworks before I did MDMA on the 4th of July. I went over there specifically to see the fireworks. Fireworks started, I freaked out, forgot they were happening. You know, I like, jumped in the floor. My parents were like, oh, my God, you know, what happened to our son? But, you know, MDMA <laughs> made it all go away. And I get super emotional about it because... You know, it's okay for me to stand up here and talk about it. Before, I wouldn't be able to do it because it still had a grip on my life. And now, I feel like before the war. I mean, it is amazing. 
Uh, one of the big stats that Rick said that really changed my whole perception of it was 80% of the people that had gone through his study no longer were diagnosed with PTSD after three treatments. That means you don't have to take SSRIs for the rest of your life. You don't have to go to therapy for the rest of your life, at least not about this. You know, life continues on, but surely more things will happen. But, uh, you know, it's given me my life back, and I couldn't be more grateful to Rick, couldn't be more grateful to Maps, couldn't be more grateful to Alexander Shulgin and my wife. You know, uh, and I guess through all that, we were dating. Through all that MDMA that we did together, we ended up getting married super fast <laughs> and falling in love. Uh, and yeah, we still say, you know, we look at each other and we're like, can you believe we got married? <laughs> no, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but that was the big thing that I wanted to share about me. So my life passion now is letting people know, like I see veterans all the time that are dealing with this. I see Vietnam veterans that are still dealing with this crap. And it's insane. You don't have to go through it. It doesn't have to be a part of life. You know? Any trauma, because it's not just a military thing. Everyone that gets born into this life is born into trauma. It's gonna happen. So, highly recommend it. I mean, I'm on the I'm on the train all the way. I'm trying to get my family to do it for their childhood stuff that they got. Like, it's really psychedelics have changed my whole family, extended family, and everything. And, but that's where I want to stop. That's what I want to share with you guys. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Um, I didn't really prepare a specific thing, but I guess um, the most important thing that I've gotten from psychedelics has been um, like building a strong foundation in my primary relationship in my life with my significant other and um, future husband. Um, so yeah, so basically my first time doing uh, LSD like high, higher doses because I had done it once before but it was like you know just, it was cool and you could see the visuals and whatever but it wasn't like super mind blowing um, but my first time was with him and it was also a lake uh, experience as well so I actually all my major experiences have been on a lake um, but yeah so my first time was with him and you know big trip this is my biggest my biggest one um, and it was, I mean, obviously just beautiful and just the most significant thing in my life ever, you know. Um, but I remember a specific point. This is like the first time that I actually had like a ego drop and probably the most significant time that I've actually like really had that experience of ego dropping um, was peeking on acid and looking over at my partner and looking at his face told you this <laughs> looking at his face and we do look kind of similar but <laughs> um I looked at his face and I started to see myself and I just kept looking at him longer and longer and I was like am I seeing myself right now <laughs> in his face and it was this weird thing where just all of a sudden it was like everything was still and I was just looking at him and realizing that he wasn't separate from me and that I didn't actually exist either and it was this the craziest feeling of just this one God presence 
and that was it, and there was nothing else. And the shock of that, the realization of that was beautiful, but it was also shocking because all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh, shit, there's nothing else. It's just this. It's the one, you know, thing. And anyways, so that was, like, incredible. And we've continued to use psychedelics to kind of bring us together and just shed away all of the, you know, all of the ego buildup that happens over time. Um, but after we had tripped together a couple of times, we actually, I became pregnant with our son. And um, so it was a long hiatus, no psychedelic journeys for a while. Um, and we actually came back together uh, to do psychedelics again, finally last, uh, last fall. And I was really nervous about it, actually. I knew that it needed to be done, but I was really nervous. I just, it had been so long, and I was in this new part of my life, and it was like, I had a lot of anxiety about it. But um, sure enough, we're sitting on the dock at the same lake that <laughs> the, first, the first big one happened, and um, we're starting to come up, and I look over at him, and he's looking at me, and just the joy on his face, and just the connection that we had in that moment, and it just clicked, and I was like, this is why we do this. This is why we do this. And um, that just came back to reality, and it just spurred this, the connection again all over. Just, you know, I guess we're six months out, outside of that, and uh, it's just spurred so many beautiful things between us, and it's really been the foundation of our relationship. I mean... Truly, it is. I mean, we talk about this often. It's this, this experience that we can share together is what makes us so strong and capable of taking on anything and capable of being parents to, you know, a beautiful child. And it's been an amazing journey because of that. So that's, that's, my, that's my share. <laughs> I want to remain, remain anonymous. Jane, I've only had a couple psychedelic experiences in my life so far, both with um, shrooms. And the first time it was with my ex-boyfriend. And I remember looking at him when we were peeking and we just both started to cry. Like it was just such an intense connection that I've never had with anyone else in my life. And... In that moment, I was like, this is it. He's the one. And I was like, I'm going gonna, gonna to marry this guy. And our relationship ended up moving super fast after that. He met my family in Canada. I went to New York for Christmas, met his family. And all within a year, I moved in with him as well at his place um, due to other financial circumstances on my end. But it got to a point where I was so wrapped up in his own world that I lost myself and I I knew that there was something else beyond the relationship that I had and I had realized that the relationship had served its purpose and so I, I broke it off with him and it was about almost a year after dating him and I, I was a mess well actually no when I first initially broke it off it was I knew it was the right thing and it just felt I felt free and I understood like okay this is like I'm building the foundation of myself so then I can be with someone and meet them exactly like 
the the analogy that I used was there's this book called um, The Prophet, um, and he describes a relationship where it's two people, and they're holding up a building. They're like pillars that hold up a building, and if the people are too close, the building will collapse. And you have to have that space to be yourself and hold space for that other person. And I felt like in our relationship, we were too close, and I was like leaning in on him, and he was too close to me, and it, it wasn't working. And so when I initially called it off, I was like, this is the right move. This is what I need to do to find myself. And then uh, a couple months went by and I, you know, had some very drunk nights where I went and saw him play. Anyway, uh, then I ended up sleeping with him three months after we broke up and it ruined me. Like I was extremely stressed out and I was breaking out horribly. I, I have scarring from that, and I could not figure out why I couldn't let this go and why he wasn't the one. Like, I was obsessed with this. Like, why is he not the one? Because he was so perfect. Like, he was everything that I had been looking for that I wanted to manifest in my life. And then we came back together again, and we started talking. We started hooking up again, and then I started to remember, like, oh, yeah, shit, this is why we can't do this. And finally, my friend Chelsea um, got some shrooms from California recently, actually, like two weeks ago. And uh, I had this moment where I was like, why? There was just something blocked in me. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't want to look at it, really, was what it came down to. And so I forced myself to look at where I was. And I asked for the truth. I just wanted to know the truth. And I meditated for like an hour while tripping and then I just it just hit me I was like I have to call him right now and <laughs> break this off so I called him while I was tripping and I explained it the, the amazing thing about tripping is that it removes a filter like I felt so much more like myself while going through this experience and I was more eloquent with how I was saying things and was able to say it exactly as I intended to say it and so when I told him all these things about when you're in a relationship with somebody or when you're not, when you're in a relationship with somebody and then you're not in a relationship with somebody and you hook up with them, sex is a very spiritual thing. You, especially for women, because we literally absorb their energy. We take in so much of what they're feeling. And I had come to the realization that I was taking on so much of his suffering because he wasn't doing the work on himself that he needed to and that's that's why I left that it, during that trip I realized that I I was only I was holding my hand out so far to pull him up with me but he didn't want to pull himself up so I called him and I like broke it off then and there and then I had a moment where I just like had my knees hit the floor and I surrendered completely to what it was and I was crying and it was really intense luckily I had my friend to call and I talked to her and then after that I was able to pull myself out of that like rabbit hole that I could have gone down of missing him and all this stuff. And I realized like, no, you're free. Like this is what it feels like to be free. And I ended up like getting up and I started playing music. I started playing guitar and I was recording. I was like ad-libbing. I was having so much fun. And then all of a sudden, Steph comes to my door. His name's Steph, by the way. Same as mine. Oh, shit. There it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, so he comes to the door, and he walked in. I remember feeling like he's not welcome here anymore. You know, and um, it, it changed my life. Like, I was able to really, honestly, truly let him go and know why. Like, I think that's the super important thing about... Because sometimes we just don't understand why we do things. And I think with shrooms and tripping, it just helps you realize why you do something. And you're okay with it. And you're like, okay, I accept myself for who I am and what I want. And I respect what I want. And he's not what I want. And that's okay. And he's going to be okay. So, and then afterwards we said bye. And it was, that's, that's it. And it's the end of the story. So I think, I think... Psychedelics have the power to help people in relationships not go back to something that is really painful. So I did mushrooms like eight or nine times all the span of like two and a half to three years, like really kind of went in on it. And um, I guess to preface the story, like what I took from mushrooms, like my first couple of deep trips into it, was that um, I kind of, I was definitely like a moody teenager, like definitely gravitated towards depressing stuff. Not that I was like super depressed, but I would just kind of fall into these lows that I wouldn't really have the tools to like bring myself out of or have the perspective to do so. And so the amazing thing for me when I did shrooms was, um, I guess like the best way that like I describe the experience, even though it's impossible to describe, describe to somebody, is that it's like, turning on a video game for the first time and the first thing you do is like kind of check out the world that you're playing in you check out your character and so you're like whoa like look at these arms I have. <laughs> and it was like that's like kind of the experience that always like first happens for me and um i guess the main takeaway like the thing that i love about the experience is that it just makes you see the world as if you're plugged into it for the first time and makes you examine the beauty of it that you just kind of take for granted day in and day out and, um, yeah, like that experience of being able to see things as if it's for the first time and realize that, like, it is like a beautiful world. Like, there's no other place to be than here. Um, I'm sorry, I was going to say something else, too. But, um, yeah, and the great thing is that, you know, when you're in it and you're peeking, like, it, oh, it's great. I mean, there's bad times, too. I'm just more talking about the external experience of it, not the internal but um, the great thing is how it lingers with you. And so I find myself now still, like even though it's been a long time since the trip, like still just taking in the beauty of the world and having a much different perspective on not so much like, well, why am I here? Why do I have to do this stuff that I have to do? But just appreciating the fact that it is all here and it all is a miracle in its own way that everything has come together for this point. Mm. And that's all I wanted to say, but I just want to share that. <laughs> Hi, my name is Andrea. I actually had my, set, my first psychedelic um, experience ever three years ago. And it was um, a little bit of background. I'm originally from Chile. I moved here um, to the U.S. Um, for uh, many reasons. And one of those reasons was um, I had a very uh, traumatic childhood. And I had three brothers, and two of them um, suffered at the time of addiction because of that uh, dramatic childhood. And I moved here um, 
trying to find myself, but at the same time trying to find a way to help them. And what I meant here, I meant here to the U.S. I've been here in the U.S. for 10 years, and three years ago I had my first uh, psychedelics experience where I find out um, not only what everybody's saying, that you really find your true self, you really discover who you really are and what you're here for, and not only it helped me to discover who I really was and, and why uh, I was um, sent to pass through all the trauma that I passed through in a childhood, and as you said it beautifully, everything, if you start looking back after doing a, a, having a psychedelic experience, you start connecting the dots and you realize, wow, everything do happen for a reason. And every single person that you meet throughout the way are, uh, are part of every, every step that you do throughout your whole journey in this life. And that's exactly what happened to me with uh, my psychedelic experience, my first psychedelic experience. I, I move out of of the city that I was living at the time with a career uh, uh, in my mind. And because my brother was super an addiction, not only one, but two of them at home, I moved to another city uh, for a job that it was actually giving me the opportunity to go and provide a solution for my brother's addictions. My um, plan was to create a nonprofit that will help uh, people with addiction and, and, and eventually that will help my brothers as well back home. I just didn't know how. I just knew I had an idea, and I had a job opportunity that it showed me that it could have that uh, opportunity, and I jumped in and I moved to another city. And it didn't work out, obviously, uh, to um, in that city, and when I needed to move back to the place that I was um, before, I couldn't. And in that week of period that I needed to stay um, longer before I moved back, I had my first psychedelic experience, and and I met my husband <laughs> today, and who is my husband today. Um, but in that psychedelic experience, not only I found myself, I found the opportunity to help my brothers. I found out about ayahuasca, how ayahuasca can help people with addictions, and how this was in Peru, and I'm from Chile, and I didn't know about it. And then I found out in Chile, it was it, it's legal that actually there are people doing it in Chile, and I didn't know about it. Why did my brothers didn't know about it all these years? They went through so many, uh, especially my oldest brother, older brother, he went through so many rehab and nothing worked. And addiction doesn't just affect the person who is in an addict, it affects the whole family. And that's because my uh, younger, um, another brother also became an addict. And I left home, and we have uh, three or four of us, and uh, our youngest brother uh, suffered that abandonment as well. And all happened because of the trauma of the childhood. And, and so I found out about ayahuasca, and I had to move back because that week, that period of lapse that I had of a week where I had my experience and I needed to go back to New York, um, I, I realized that there was a way out, that my trip moving to another city, it, 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 it did not bring my, my purpose, what I wanted to do for, to help my brothers, but it did show me a, another way that I have never been, I have never seen it before and that it was taken away from me and from my family and from my brothers. Like, these drugs are being illegal, so these drugs are helping people, are, 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 are healing people, are, are changing life, not of, on only one person, but many others around. And the fact that they are illegal and they're most, all of them are um, schedule one, 
I felt that it was taken away from me and, and, and that I needed to do something about it, that I needed to help my brothers no matter what. And I went back to New York, and, and the reason I wanted to mention this is because I'm very grateful to the Psychedelic Society of Brooklyn. I went to New York, and I found this, and started looking at people about ayahuasca and, and because I wanted to help my brothers. And I went to a meetup uh, of the Psychedelic of Brooklyn. And, I'm sorry. Before that, I went to a crystal store. And I met somebody who was very special, and I, I told this, he asked me, why are you here? And I told my whole story, and he said, no, your brothers don't need ayahuasca. Your brothers need Iboga. I'm like, what is Iboga? I never heard of it. And he said, it's an African root, search for it. And that became my passion. And that's when I went to the Brooklyn um, um, Society meetup uh, in the library, and Neil uh, Goldsmith was talking about Incodet. And I see somebody walking with a Iboga in t-shirt, and I see that person, I'm like, that's the guy that I need to talk to, you know? Like, he's wearing a bobo shirt, I'm here for my brothers, I need to find out what is going on, what is this drug, and, and why is it illegal? And I, when I spoke with this person, making the story um, short, um, uh, at the same time, this was 2016, last year, the conference, the international conference, or conference that Iboga in was happening in, in Mexico at the time, and this person that I met was going to the conference. So I invite him over when he came back from the conference for dinner, and we're having a talk, and I, he knew a whole story about my brothers and how much I wanted to help them, or I wanted to help them to find out a way to heal them, and, and my whole family as well, my parents and my youngest brother, and, and myself as well. Um, and, and we are having dinner at my house, and he makes a call, and in that call, he finds out that somebody that went to that conference, international conference from Switzerland, was moving to Chile to work with the plan by the end of the year. Just like that. Just like that. I look for Iboga. Not only that, I wanted to make a point that before that, when I found out about Iboga, I looked everywhere. I spoke with so many people about it and how to get it and I was to a point I got to a point that I just wanted to buy it on the on the black market and send it back home and just do it at like whatever it takes to do it so they can get healed. And I realized over time, especially that person who helped out with that call and was wearing the Bulgarian shirt, um, all always told me, No, you can't do that, you know, like the set and set is super, 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 super important for this medicine to actually really work and do the job that it they supposed to do. So I, I, I started researching about it, and, and I get it, and I, I really got it, and I'm like, okay, yes. It, it can't just be like that. It can actually harm my brothers and my whole family if I do it like that. And, 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 and that happened within weeks until I found out that somebody was actually moving to that country, to my country back home, um, to work with the, with the medicine. This happened, I think, around August. Uh, the person moved to Chile and to work with the medicine at the end of the year. In January this year, my brothers did uh, Iboga. And thank goodness, and all the angels and all the people that made this um, happen, actually, they are healed today and they're back home. Um, they stay away for a, for a period of time as well to recover and to do the reintegration work, which is super, super important with Iboga. And it's not just taking the... The, the medicine and doing the journey and then come back home and thinking that, that everything is going to be okay. No, there is a lot of work to do. There's a lot of healing and a lot of uh, rebuilding to do. And they did that. They had the opportunity to do that. 
And the reason I wanted to share this story is because I would have never known if I didn't go to the Psychedelic Society of Brooklyn meetup, you know? And if that guy didn't show up with a shirt, I would have never found out about it either. Everything did happen for a reason. And, and, and what Lex was saying, when you tell your story, you know, like you really can get, um, people can get empathic with your story and, and, and can really understand that, that these, these medicines are illegal, not because they're harmful for you. They're illegal, <laughs> we don't know why, but they're, they're illegal and, and, and we must do something to change that. Because so many people live with trauma. So many people live with shelter trauma today. And so many people suffer on a daily basis uh, and, 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 and they don't know that it's a way out. And one thing I did um, learn about psychedelics, um, which is really important to know that psychedelics show you that way out, but the only way out is true. And um, I also wanted to share it on the other side, not only my brothers are being healed, my mom is willing to work on her, her trauma, and, and um, I'm going to, to, to to have the experience at the end of this year as well, uh, which is beautiful because my brothers are the one paying for it, which means wait so much uh, for me. Um, not because of, it's, it's just the fact that they could have died a year ago and now they're willing to pay for my healing when I'm super far away. And, and these medicines are, are incredible. It really changed my life and the life of my whole family and it's still dual. And now on top of that, I got to meet my husband, <laughs> and he got to try uh, to um, the opportunity to work on his PTSD. So I did as well with MDMA uh, of my trauma childhood, which opened my heart uh, to to healing and to be able to fall in love and and to live this life that is what you said is is the only life we have, and we're here for a reason. And psychedelics show you that way to 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 find yourself and to be able to to be true to yourself and to 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 like I say to discover what we're here for and 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 why we came home we came in the first place and I believe that is to make a world a better place and I believe psychedelic renaissance right now is happening because of that and I believe this is not a coincidence where we're talking about this right now I believe it's even if one person can relate to a story and, and it can change that person, uh, the perspective of knowing that, that there is a way out, and that way it is true, but there is a way out, um, I think that it's important that spaces like these are able to, I mean, the, the spaces like these are open so people are able to share their story and also uh, encourage others to, to work in their own healing. I have a funny story. Oh, I'm Bodhi, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know. I have a funny story of a trip fairly recently, but just a little bit of a, a short background on my psychedelic experience. It's almost zero. I, have, I tried, I have no experience with anything except mushrooms. My first time was probably three or four years ago. Um, I came into it not knowing... Well, knowing almost nothing about it. Um, 
my, I, I had a friend when I was younger. He told me about taking LSD in high school, and he described, you know, going to class, and this is what the teacher looked like and all that. And it was interesting. I was curious about it, but I had no way to really understand it because I'd never done LSD. I still haven't. Um, so I didn't really have any way to... I didn't really know anything about psychedelics in general, just the bare, bare minimum. Well, three or four years ago, my girlfriend got a hold of some mushrooms. And I, I don't even know how much it was. I guess an eighth that we split. And so it was a fun, fun time. And to add to the theme of the night, uh, I would say that it changed my life. It changed the direction of my life because um, even though the experience wasn't super great, we went into it kind of like a party drug, the way you go to a party and drink beer, whatever. It's going to be a fun night. We're going to have fun. And, and it was. Um, it kicked in 40 minutes or so, and oh, look at the walls, and the towels are breathing. This is great. And then a couple hours into it, an hour, maybe two, uh, like I said, I didn't know anything about it. We didn't know anything about dosing. That's very important. Didn't know that maybe you don't want to eat. I got hungry. I had the munchies, opened the fridge, some leftovers from dinner. And uh, so I ate this big fat pork chop, and a half hour later, I'm super bummed out. <laughs> Ended up working out for the best because uh, I'd had some, uh, some the muscle tissue around my rib cage had been getting inflamed gradually and ended up having to go to the emergency room that night. So it probably worked out for the best that I was not on a mushrooms when I went. Since then, I've learned a lot. I've learned about microdosing and, and um, uh, just a lot of the, the mechanics, the, the hardware aspect of, of doing mushrooms, not like the internal side. So learned a lot about that since then and then um but my my total psychedelic experience is still not much it's only been three or four years since the first time and since then i've probably tripped five times and probably half of those got cut short for whatever reason like the first one I ate something or something came up and it just it didn't work out i only had two or three i think full-on trips and and all of that was under three grams so not much not much. And so uh, this one time a few weeks ago, uh, I had this my day off. I'm alone. I had it all planned out. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trip. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to learn something. Whenever, whether I'm tripping or not, no matter what I'm doing, I always, I always want to be, I want to learn things. I want to be engaged in my environment. I want to just, I've always, always liked to learn new things. So I had this idea. I had it planned out. I was either going to watch something with Spanish in it because I want to learn Spanish or sign language or guitar. One of these three things, I'm going to watch some videos with one of these three elements in it. And put on a couple Spanish telenovelas and wasn't really feeling it, wasn't getting into it. Ended up settling on Cartel Land, which if you don't know, is this Netflix documentary. <laughs> it is extremely brutal. It, like, it is... I'm like, there's, there's some Spanish speaking in that, I'll watch that. It is... Uh, it's not something I would want to watch not on mushrooms. Just looking back, I don't think... If I had to watch it not on mushrooms, I don't think I'd want to watch it. it was, it's very, very difficult. They, it's very brutal and graphic. They don't show anybody getting killed, but they show images of people who have been killed. And there's a lot of graphic descriptions of, of the way that the cartels you know, treat people and stuff. So uh, as soon as it starts, my very first thought is... This is a little bit ironic because here I am consuming a, a, a Schedule One highly illegal substance while I'm watching a documentary about the horrible, you know, what I hope are unintended consequences of the war on some drugs. And um, 
But uh, I wasn't too bothered by it because I don't get my mushrooms from Mexico. Cartels can traffic in mushrooms all they want. I ain't eating them. Uh, all my all my money goes to the local economy. <laughs> so it, it comes on, and um, that was my first thought. Well, this is a little bit ironic, but then um, then the visuals start kicking in, and there was uh, there was this one scene where like one of the resistance leaders in I think it's in Mexico. Uh, he's he's like there's a lot of small resistance groups, and he's like one of the leaders of the bigger ones that like the the local village people that go and, and take charge of their own village and fight against the cartels. And uh, so there's this one scene where the guy like meets his father, hasn't seen his father in I guess years, and, and, I'm, and I'm watching it and um, I'm thinking, these guys haven't seen each other in years? I mean like, their shirts are perfectly color coordinated, the, the, the blues of their shirt matches like the light reflecting off their eyebrows and their hair and their mustache. And it matches the truck, and it matches the hills that are literally rolling in the background. I mean, this is not, this is not a super freaky um, documentary about the horrors of the drug war. This is a really, really artistically directed horror movie, <laughs> like a, a torture porn movie. But that's, that's how it was on Mushrooms, and um, it made it a lot more bearable to watch, a lot easier to watch. I, don't, I really don't think I could watch that movie or documentary with, without being on Mushrooms. Uh, it's it's very uh, informative. There's there's um, you learn a lot about people and governments and stuff like that. And uh, I highly recommend it, but maybe on about two and a half grams of mushrooms. 